just who and what is an intellectual? Albert Salomon, one of the uh, Frankfurt School, who wound up at the New School for Social Research years ago, got off this line. Uh, the intellectual enters history through the door of the French Revolution. That might be a place to begin as we discuss the role of public intellectuals with Judge Richard Posner. Um, he is, of course, well known in this town and around the country, a judge in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit, um, also a senior lecturer at the University of Chicago Law School, and a prolific author. The newest book is Public Intellectuals, A Study of Decline, Harvard University Press, the publishers. And our other guest, Ron Grossman, is a good old friend, uh, one of the major writers at the Chicago Tribune, features writer, former professor of ancient history, uh, at Lake Forest College and other institutions before that, frequent commentator on American intellectual life. Is it true that the we first conceive intellectuals somehow in connection with the making of the French Revolution? Oh, I'd go back farther. I actually think of Socrates and Jeremiah mm -hmm. as the uh, inventors, uh, and then uh, as uh, and then the next um, big wave are uh, Romans like Cicero and Seneca. Well, these are men of thought, of course, and, and they well, write. Well, but, but do we have a conception active. of them? They were act I mean, Cicero, of course, was a consul and was very politically yeah. active. Seneca was described as the chief ideologist and public relations officer for Nero. Yes. Because <laughs> he fell out of favor and had to kill himself. But so these were these were definitely intellectual people who were active publicly. You actually put Julius Caesar in there. Well, that th then we come directly to the question of what you mean by public intellectual. Well, I mean uh, an intellectual in the sense of not necessarily a scholar, but an intellectual is someone uh, who, who uses general ideas about culture, about history, about uh, politics, so on, uh, but uses them to try to communicate with uh, uh, the general public about the problems that the general public is interested in. So he sort of takes the ideas, you know, from the Empyrean or the cultural tradition and tries to put them in a form that they're both applicable to current problems and intelligible to yeah. the practical people have to deal with the problems. I've noticed something interesting on the Internet. Uh, if you go to some location that reprints columnists, uh, among other things, like the Drudge Report, or the Jewish World Review, you will find a list of perhaps a hundred columnists. And just the other day, with your mm -hmm. book in mind, I was running down it asking myself, just in terms of what I know about these people, how many of them are university-based and how many are not? And uh, about one-third to one-half of them are university-based. Mm -hmm. In fact, mm -hmm. I think uh, one of the points of the judge's book is that we partially need the term public intellectual now because of the rise of the academician. Uh, those earlier right. figures, the Socrates, the Cicero, etc., existed before the rise of the modern university, perforce the writing or, or speaking to a general audience. It's only with the development of the university in Europe in the 19th century and its importation here towards the end of that in this century that you have the distinction between scholar and public intellectual. Now, I have a small surprise for both of you. Uh, the man who leads the list, based upon the methodology that Judge Posner uh, employed, and we'll talk about that methodology later. But in essence, the most cited, the most attended of all public intellectuals in this country uh, was with us a while ago, and here he is. The chapter concerned <clears throat> with the Middle East. At the moment, things look quite dreadful there, don't they? Uh, yes and no. Compared to the hopes of last year, they look very retro. 
compared to the realities of last year, I actually think uh, that some progress is being made. I know that sounds paradoxical, but last year uh, the goal was to achieve a permanent peace, to write, to write it all down mm -hmm. on a piece of paper. That was the Oslo vision. Yeah, that was yeah. the culmination of the Oslo vision. Yeah. And uh, President Clinton invited the Arafat and then Israeli Prime Minister Barak to uh, Camp David uh, to settle in one week uh, all the issues. Now, as I've indicated earlier in this program, the Middle East is very similar to the uh, 30 years war period in in Europe, that is, it's fundamental philosophical and religious conflict. And so that the idea that this could be settled in seven days was already, uh, pre uh, frankly, preposterous. Then the idea that uh, you could deal with the holy places, territorial boundaries, uh, in one document, and that this document then would last for all eternity absolutely was contrary to the realities uh, of the region. The practical consequence of this was <laughs> that each side was being asked to make decisions that ran totally counter to the convictions of their populations, so that sooner or later uh, some explosion was almost unavoidable. That is Henry Kissinger uh, in June of last year. Uh, there we have a former Harvard professor who became national security uh, head and then, of course, secretary of state. Uh, he's bringing a good deal of intellectual competence to contemporary affairs, which he also had to do when he was secretary of state. Is that a good performance of a public intellectual? Excellent. Notice that it begins with answering the question, on the one hand, yes, <laughs> and on the other hand, no. He's uh, tried to convey to you an impartiality or an ability to weigh the evidence pro and con. Mm -hmm. What he might do afterwards is, is something else indeed. I loved his reference to the 30 Years yes, War yes. as a model for yes. the Israeli-Palestinian well, he, conflict. Well, he's clearly someone whose uh, thoughts about contemporary affairs are influenced by you know, this large intellectual superstructure, partly historical, partly you know, strategic uh, kind of political science that they did at uh, Harvard when he was there. So the public career of Henry Kissinger does not represent the decline of the public intellectual particularly. No, no, no he does not. He's sort of a model figure, would you say? Yeah, I would say so. Now, of course, he's, he's, uh, he's getting on in years. Mm -hmm. Another of, of his, uh, I, I think, you know, really distinguished public intellectual is Milton Friedman. Uh, he's been more academically based than Kissinger. He doesn't have the public, uh, uh, the, the government career. But, you know, he's an enormously influential person. But I think when you look at these sort of model public intellectuals, they tend to be um, uh, elderly people whose int intellectual development and academic experience was at a time of much less sort of narrow specialization than uh, young academics today. Well, let me offer you one or two other public intellectuals. In fact, I'll offer you one from this town, but not from the university that all three of us share, Iran had his education at the University mm -hmm. of Chicago, but rather the current dean of arts and sciences at the University of Illinois, Chicago, Stanley Fish, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. who was a great find and was brought here a few years ago from Duke, where he had managed to wreck the Department of English. Uh, he's very much a public intellectual. He writes, um, he writes um, 
ponder, not ponderous pieces. He writes teasing pieces, and yes. uh, he writes books that are designed to kind of disorient you as to whether Provoke, truth yes. is available by any yes. method at all. Yeah. And um, he has a following. What do you make of him as a public intellectual? Oh, I think he's, I think he's, a, you know, an able and, and, and useful uh, provocateur, uh, gadfly, a very, very bright person. And uh, I think actually, from what I know, do, doing a, a fine job as an administrator at, um, at, at Circle. So, um, but um, uh, when I think of, of the, the great public intellectuals, I mean, we'll go back to Cicero and Seneca, or even to John Stuart Mill, of course, is an example of a, a great intellectual who never had a university appointment. But when you think of the 20th century public intellectuals, some academics, some not, people like uh, Orwell and Ed, Edmund Wilson here and Raymond Aron and so on, um, Arthur Kessler, I, I, I mean, with all respect for Stanley, whom I like a lot, I don't think uh, he contributes to the culture to the society the sort of thing those people did because remember his the base is academic and what you refer to i think right is kind of teasing uh books and articles he writes belong that's a rather peripheral discourse i mean postmodernism is not something that the mass of american people are interested in or shouldn't be interested. It has nothing for that. Its basic proposition is there is no truth except this, <laughs> this right. pronouncement. So of course that's something academics are fascinating. That's a fascinating idea, and they play with that and so on. But I, so I think Fish is is to one side of what you know is kind of important for the. Well, I like the quartet you you just listed from an earlier period. I think you said Orwell, Wilson, Raymond Aron. Who was the fourth? Arthur Kessler. Arthur and Kessler. Can, Do you find anybody of that on. caliber? Functioning as a public intellectual today. Oh, I think I think uh, I think so, I, you know I think someone like uh, Milton Friedman and Henry Kissinger can hold their their own with, with with these people of the past. But as I say, they're kind of an, an elderly generation. I don't I don't see the uh, young even the young middle-aged people who are occupying the roles no. of the these busy people. perpetrators of op-ed pieces. Who are the best? Well, uh, well, I have you know I have my own my own favorites. I I, I think very highly of Andrew Sullivan, for example. Mm -hmm. But I don't I I say I, I don't think um, uh, partly could, I just don't think we're getting the same. I, I use my sort of model a person like um, a, a George Orwell. I say here's here's a person obviously tremendously smart doesn't go to college. <laughs> Uh, goes and works as a policeman in Burma, and quits that, and sort of leave, lives hand to mouth as a, as a marginal journalist. And one of his great books is Down and Out in Paris out and in London. Paris, yeah. And you know, having a range of experiences which uh, modern academic people do not have, he did not lead a sheltered life, and um, so there. And, and so so here's a person he. You know, Great novelist, great satirist, uh, great political thinker, ethnologist, literary critic, and so on. I, I just don't, I don't see people like that. I don't see that as as feasible for people in our society. Well, I'm sampling, and let me turn to uh, to Ron Grossman. Let me make another comment about Orwell. But I want to know who you particularly find of value as a public intellectual today. In the current, yeah. very few. Perhaps George Steiner, who is pr uh -huh. primarily a literary scholar. 
uh, and uh, exegetus, but he does write some nice political essays or political historical essays. He mm -hmm. had one wonderful one on what it was to commit yourself to being a Jewish parent in the early years of the 20th century. I thought that was absolutely oh, I, I want to make another point about Orwell, and it's interesting that uh, the list, uh, the former list of the Orwells, uh, Wilsons at all, are all non-academicians as opposed to the current. Orwell was in his own sense a kind of s scholar. He made vast collections of material yeah. almost like a professor would. He yeah. had a ca collection of pamphlets from right. every right. marginal political faction yeah. he could ever find. I am late for commercials. I must go to those instantly, but I can't resist telling both of you that when I first arrived in 1965, at the University of Chicago, I was invited to attend a sort of a private two-day meeting on foreign affairs, and two of the people at that meeting were Hannah Arendt and Raymond Aron, hmm. uh, which was thrilling to me, uh, particularly. Uh, later on, I was on a committee with Arendt, but Aron I just uh, hmm. saw for hmm. those two days. Also at the meeting was Herman Kahn, a oh, very yes, interesting public yes. intellectual, yeah. uh, but we pause. And then directly back, as we draw from the rich content of the new book, by Judge Posner, Public Intellectuals, A Study of Decline. We are talking about intellectuals in the public sphere and, um, and dealing with some estimates of their performance. It is the general view of Judge Richard Posner, author of the new book, Public Intellectuals, that their performance is not especially impressive. I wonder if uh, you would both agree, that is both uh, Richard Posner and Ron Grossman, with Dwight Eisenhower, I just found this, <laughs> who says an intellectual is a man who takes more words than he needs to say more than he knows. <laughs> now, I don't know whether Eisenhower actually said that or whether Malcolm Moose wrote that for him, but uh, is that in a way consistent well, with Well, I think your the view? second half of it uh, expresses a danger that is speaking beyond what you know, because I think, you know, people who have command of words and idea, general ideas, and who are intelligent, imaginative people find it easy to cast their mind beyond whatever is, you know, in front of their eyes. So if you ask them what to do about global warming or um, uh, uh, nuclear disarmament or something, they'll think, you know, I'm very bright. I can think this through. I'm not impressed by the experts I talk to, so yes, I'll offer you my opinion. So that arrogance is is a uh, real, real danger. Of course, the basic argument of your book is that academics have grown more and more specialized, yeah. and by virtue of that narrower specialization, you're not just a psychologist, you're not just a chemist, you're working in a sub-area of a sub-area, yeah. and that's where you're doing all of your publishing, that that being the case, they are less equipped to address general issues of moral and political and yeah. social yeah, concern. Yeah, you, a, you lead a cloistered life. You deal with, you know, a limited set of texts. You your interactions are, you know, with students and fellow professors. And um, um, meanwhile, the world is becoming immensely complex. Mm -hmm. And um, the and the other point I emphasize is that there are many more university positions open now to uh, highly intelligent people. There used to be a, you know, a great deal of discrimination. So a lot of people who were academic quality couldn't get academic jobs. Now the academic quality people can get those jobs. They can be tenured. They can have a safe birth. And then they can sail out and make these general pronouncements. And pontificate and bloviate. They can pontificate and, yes. 
And um, the sanctions are, are very limited. Occasionally they're made fools of, but most of the time they're just uh, maybe ignored or... Yeah. You know, it just uh, suddenly occurs to me, we have a kind of living experiment right, I was in front of us right now. Ron Grossman, how many years were you an academic? About 22. 22. Mm -hmm. And you were doing specialized research on medieval history. Oh, but building up a, a storehouse of knowledge, even for the first time I became a writer. But <laughs> once you... Uh, shifted to journalism. I know you had done journalism part-time mm -hmm. while you were working at Lake Forest, but once you came over here to the Tribune, and by a year or two later, do you think you had uh, a wider set of insights, a wider comprehension of the world that you are covering? I think it was what the judge... Well, you're better than an academic is what I'm really asking. I, one thing that the judge said is that when you strip away that cloistered existence, you get a chance to test your ideas against something called the real world, and that's an awakening process. Mm -hmm. There's no doubt about it. There's no doubt about that. What did you learn that you hadn't... What did you learn about how stupid you had been before? The world is much more complicated uh, than in any kind of intellectual formalization. Uh, and, you know, we slip into this all the time. If I could give a personal anecdote. Do, please. Uh, this goes to uh, the judges' uh, uh, compilations of predictability and how accurate public intellectuals are at it. When uh, we went into the Gulf War, remember there was a delay while we built up our forces there and everybody knew an invasion is coming, but there were weeks of bombing. I did a piece called Six Lessons from Middle Eastern History. It was brilliant if I say so myself. Now, on second thought, I'd call it clever, not brilliant. I took six episodes from the history of that part of the world and concluded from that that we are getting into a situation we don't understand and in which we will bog down in such a fashion that trench warfare in, uh, in World War I will seem like a picnic by comparison. You are a little off. <laughs> but the interesting thing is I got compliments, they syndicated it, and I got compliments all over the country on that thing. Brilliant, thank you. It helps us to understand the war went absolutely the other way. We rolled them up and got out, possibly got out too soon. It was a four-day war. The prediction was completely off. Nobody complained or asked for their money back. <laughs> Nobody. Right. And I, I think that if you lead a life totally within the academic world, you don't have those kinds right. of sobering you experiences. You never falsify. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 That's right. yeah. uh, let's talk some about the methodology. And let me okay. ask you first. The last time we chatted was uh, uh, with your book on, uh, let's see, wasn't the, the election? The one on the election. Before that, we chatted over your book on the impeachment. Uh, I suppose this one was already in the works when the book on the uh, election was yes, published. Yes, that's true. Yeah. What brought you to it? What, what motivated this inquiry? Well, it, uh, the, um, I, I was surprised uh, during the Clinton investigation impeachment, now that went on for a whole year, at the, um, uh, uh, the outpouring of academic uh, commentary uh, not only in the form of articles or you know kind of sober appearances on television or radio, but uh, the the petitions and the uh, the teaching at uh, uh, New York University. I got the tape of that, and um, it seemed to me remarkably uh, uh, irresponsible. Uh, there was a, a full-page advertisement signed by 400 historians, New York Times, organized by that fellow at Princeton. 
Sean Willens. Sean Willens, yeah. Making statements about the original understanding of... These are all law professors, as I remember. No, those were historians. There were several. There were hundreds of law professors, hundreds of historians. The historians, you know, uh, uh, expressed... Now, of the historians who signed this, probably the number who were actually specialists in 18th century American history were probably minuscule. But what it said... Uh, was so lacking in, in nuance that it couldn't even reflect the views of the 18th century specialists. So, um, so I, I, I found that disturbing, and it seemed to me, and I also noticed in the Microsoft, I was involved in the Microsoft case as a mediator, and again, I, I realized quickly Microsoft case was immensely complicated and technical, and yet there were, you know, professors, law professors were giving statements to the newspapers about the case and its merits and so on, I didn't think they could possibly... So you decided, let's around. take a closer look at the performance uh, of public intellectuals. Yeah. How did you develop the methodology? Well, the, the book doesn't have a single methodology. One thing I tried to do was simply to um, uh, compile the record of what the people had said. I mean, I knew, for example, Paul Ehrlich has been a ecological doomsayer for a long time, but I didn't know it in detail. So I went back and I tried to find, you know, I, I found I found his interview in Field and Stream, and I found all sorts of obscure stuff in which he said really wild things about the end of commercial fishing and about fall in the American uh, uh, life expectancy because of DDT, and, and he made the mistake he, he kind of reached a crescendo in the first Earth Day in 1970. But he made the mistake, which you must never make if you're a you know, millennialist, of actually dating when the prediction was to take place. So he said in 1970, he said, by 1974, it's quite likely that there will be food and water rationing in the United States. And by 1980, you know, 200 million people would starve to death. So there is, like the people who predict the end of the world, you know, on a date certain. And it comes Isn't he still explain. around and still predicting? He's a, yeah, he's a professor at the Stanford, yeah. a respectable professor of biology, writes books, they're published. Uh, he's learned one lesson, which is that you don't date your, your, your prophecy. But <laughs> the, the prophecies of doom continue. So, so part of the book is, is looking at predictions. I, I didn't know about your prediction, but... Uh, I mentioned Edward Lutwak, who's a, a kind of incessant commentator about military affairs, and he had a goofy prediction about Afghanistan. <laughs> and, uh, and if you go back to 1990, uh, he was saying, you know, really dumb things. Well, they're bogging down, but of course you're not a specialist in, in military history, but that's his field. And he made those erroneous predictions, and he's still making, he's still talking nonsense. But one. he's, you know, distinguished, and people consult him, and no one interviews him and says, well, look, Wack, yeah. you've always been wrong before. And you're a guy who you actually wrote a book in the 70s in which you predicted the Soviet Union would invade China. And then you, when the, during the Russian invasion of Afghanistan, you said, you know, the Russians are doing great, Soviet Union is showing enormous power, and they're winning and all that. So... You're an expert on Afghanistan. You were wrong the first time. A couple of months ago, you said we were, you know, going to do terribly in Afghanistan this time. So why should we believe anything you say? I think the lesson might be never predict. <laughs> I, I think at one Interpret point, what has yeah, happened, but yeah, never one, predict what will happen. Post in your book, yeah. 
You say that the model is the Old Testament prophets, <laughs> that is, don't get published till after That's the right. events, so mm -hmm. that in the redaction someone can strip out the worst errors of prediction. Well, the Old Testament prophets were also very strong on uh, condemning, and there's a special school which you call the Jeremiah School. Yes, they the public, decline people. Yeah, public like intellectuals who view with great yeah. alarm and distress. Yeah. So part of it is to say, you know, I wanted to look at the, some of these predictions and evaluations by these well-known commentators. Partly I wanted to look in depth at some people who I actually consider to be, you know, like Martha Nussbaum and Richard Rorty and uh, Robert Putnam. I, I, dis I may disagree with them a lot, but I consider them to be, you know, classy thinkers. And partly was I, I was interested in the statistics. I, I've always enjoyed statistical analysis. And, and the making of lists is great fun, and you had a list well, to make. I know, but I, I feel bad about that because uh, people think that, or, or give the impression, I don't know if they really believe it, that, that uh, I made a list because Americans love lists and I wanted to be able to present a new ranking, a new order of merit. <laughs> and that wasn't my purpose. I was just rereading that chapter. And it wasn't my purpose. I made the list so I could do an analysis, a quantitative analysis. I was interested in... Uh, uh, how many of the most mentioned foreign intellectuals are dead, alive, foreign, American, Jewish, non-Jewish, black, white, so on? Actually, as I look at that list that I have it in front could, of me right could now. Could I uh, ask a question here? After I read this, I just okay. want to, uh, here are the top ten uh, most quoted. These are uh, public intellectuals by media mentions. Henry Kissinger does indeed lead the list. The list. Uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, George Will. That one surprised, surprised me and pleased me. Lawrence Summers, the new president of Harvard. William J. Bennett, Robert Reich, Sidney Blumenthal, Arthur Miller, Salman Rushdie, William Sapphire. Since we've established how many years I've been out of the classroom, I want to know how many years you've been out of the classroom. Oh, I've never been out of the classroom. I taught, I taught well, this afternoon. Uh, do you do blue books? I do. I do. Because okay. uh, I, I, I sensed the professor's <laughs> red pen the urge to put that red pen to uh, people and, and grade them. And, and I must say, on a, a very severe scale. Uh, I, I didn't. I, I thought I was being, I, I tried to be, I, I tried to acknowledge the, the people who seemed to me to be very good people who maybe go too far. For example, Paul Krugman. Now, this was before, you know. Enron and all that, but I, I mentioned, I, I said, I believe Paul Krugman is a very distinguished economist, and he has a lot of good things to say. He's become much more political since since I wrote this, but you know, he's he's a distinguished person. Uh, but he, you know, when he starts talking about the Robinson-Patman Act, when he starts talking about British aircraft in World War II, he just doesn't know what he's talking about. Well, gentlemen, I am very late for commercials, but speaking of. Uh... Uh, commercials and the corporate world and thus of capitalism. Um, there is a particular public intellectual whom apparently you have strong feelings about. His name is Noam Chomsky. Mm -hmm. And just what he represents might be worth a little special attention when we return right after these words. There are a few bete noir in this book, Public Intellectuals, A Study of Decline by Richard A. Posner. Um, Stephen Gould is one of them. Alan Dershowitz uh, seems to rank Paul Ehrlich, certainly does. But leading all the rest is Noam Chomsky. Mm -hmm. Explain to the world, uh, those who may never have heard of him, just who and what he is. 
Chomsky is the most distinguished uh, scholar of, of uh, language theory in the world, the uh, you know, leading figure in cognitive science and related disciplines, very important to philosophers and psychologists and linguists, so on, at uh, MIT. So he's a, he's a genius and one of the leading social scientists of, the, of modern times. But he has a side career as a political uh, writer, political commentator, public, classic public intellectual, denouncing American foreign policy. And he's written uh, many books and articles. I've read quite, quite extensively in his work. He not only denounces, he reveals plots all the time. Uh, reveals yes, the secret plots, hand that yes, he Yes, for example, uh, at the time of the Cambodian massacres, where now every, everyone agrees that Pol Pot, Khmer Rouge gang killed uh, literally millions of Cambodians, he thought that um, at most a few thousand had been killed, maybe just hundreds, and that uh, uh, the rest was a fabrication. And... Um, He's made remarkable claims. He regards the United States as on a par with Hitler's Germany and um, with the Soviet Union, and definitely uh, inferior, I mean, definitely uh, worse, more evil than Imperial Japan, for which he has a kind of softness, probably because we atomic bombed them. But he said, for example, that just because Japan attacked military bases in two American colonies did not justify us in invading and occupying Japan. Apparently, he, because Hawaii wasn't as... Apparently, he regards Hawaii and the Philippines as American colonies, so that the attack on Pearl Harbor and on, you know, Clark Field and the rest of the Philippines were what he's referring to. We should apparently have acknowledged that they are American colonies, and therefore we had no right to defend them. And he said, you know, crazy stuff about Cuba, says... And um, uh, one of the on things he on, did also was to join the Holocaust revisionists in a way, uh, writing. Well, he's very hostile to Israel. He is yeah. very hostile to Israel. He has never acknowledged. Not not only is he extremely conscious of the claims and and the suffering and so on of the Palestinian Arabs, but he has never acknowledged that Israel has any legitimate security interest. In he regards every war. Uh, every conflict between Israel and the Arab states as the product of Israeli aggression. And some years ago, he wrote a preface to a book by Robert Faurisson, who was mm -hmm. the leading French uh, revisionist, uh, yeah. uh, Holocaust revisionist. Mm -hmm. You said... Uh, I, I spent, uh, you spent a day part of him. a day with him. Nice guy? Charming. Totally charming. Uh, and you could say to him, Noam, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. And he smiles and says, <laughs> tell me why. <laughs> so the man that you sit next to yeah. is not quite the polemicist when he's yeah. at the podium or uh, writing an article. Yeah. I think you see something else with him. I'm a, uh, I've met him once or twice, but uh, in academic circles. But if you look at the clacks who are very eager to hear him, you get a sense that he must take real pleasure in the fact that he's got followers to whom he is ultimate guru. Yeah. Yes. You know, if you look at yeah, him... Foucault it, is like that also. Yeah. Yes, yes, if, having a passionate if, if you look at him vis-a-vis uh, -vis Orwell, you find an interesting thing between those two generations. Uh, Orwell is of the left, yet some of his most severe criticisms are of people in his own camp. Yeah. 
Chomsky is of the left, and he gives the left a pass and attacks only yeah. the other side. Yeah. Yeah. I think in general that's yeah. what's happened from that earlier generation yeah. to now is that that self-critical or I'm willing to let myself be subject to the same standards that I apply to others, that's been lost. Yeah. Um, I want to come to something that connects this book back to your career or to your major theoretical um, views, uh, as those views show up in many of your other uh, um, your other books and, and your, for that matter, even some of your uh, judicial opinions. That is the law and economics uh, mm -hmm. approach and the market analysis that you do here mm -hmm. with regard to the, the wares that the public intellectual is selling right. and the currency in which he is paid. And okay. whether it's a market that gives back good information evaluating the quality of the, of the product. Yeah, I think I think it can be dis I think it can be discussed uh, meaningfully in economic market terms because economists like to talk about a class of goods called credence goods, where you really can't tell the quality of the good by looking at it or squeezing it, you know, like a melon or something like that. So, for example, you know, s someone sells you a contract to eliminate termite or to prevent termites from your house. You don't know whether it's going to work. So. You, you you grasp at various straws, look at the reputation, maybe the person puts up a bond, gives you a warranty, something like that. If you don't have any of the, any quality assurances, you, you're really going to worry that you, you're not going to get a good product. And I think the problem with the public intellectuals, one problem is when they're academics, uh, they're, they're not bonded in a sense because if they make foolish predictions or dumb statements, and even if they're proved wrong, there's no actual sanction. They don't lose money or something like that, especially since no one seems to be rec recording and criticizing their mispredictions. Um, they're dealing with inherently very difficult issues of a political, ideological character. It's very hard for the uh, public to, to, to judge. Uh, some of the straws the public would grasp at is the academic prominence of the person. So Chomsky is a fa deservedly famous professor, but I don't think people realize that you can be a, you can be a brilliant professor and you can be a fool actually uh, in, in every other people. I don't think realize how compartmentalized intellectual gifts are. In the realm of argument and uh, prediction, particularly in the realm of argument and the trotting out of uh, value analyses of particular social or public dilemmas. Uh, can one, in fact, uh, get a credibility score, or are these, or is this discourse rather than uh, wisdom? I think it's yeah. I think it's discourse rather than wisdom. Uh, uh, the um, I, th I think a lot of the market. And you mentioned uh, uh, Chomsky's fans. A lot of this is about um, about building solidarity. That is, you have a, we all have a certain bent, and then we discover this very intelligent, articulate, distinguished person shares our views, only expresses them more articulately and with greater confidence than we would. So we like that, and we rally to this person. We're not going to be inspecting his statements for logic. We're not going to be keeping score. We like the idea we have a champion. So, so that's a market, but that's not a market that has anything to do with producing information or producing truth. You do suggest that that market can be somehow reorganized and we can begin to generate a better product. 
Yeah, I'd like to. I these these are quixotic uh, proposals, but I'd, I think it would be very good if there if some norm could emerge in which uh, uh, academics uh, felt it was their their obligation to make all their public intellectual pronouncements a matter of public record, uh, post them on the university website, their own website, but in some kind of durable form. So. A person who was curious, you know, he read, maybe Edward Lutwak has got a new prediction. He says, you know, well, I don't know whether to believe Lutwak. I'd like to know more about the, what he said in the past. And you could go somewhere and you could and you could look. Now it's very, very difficult to, to do. So these people get away with murder because, I mean, one of my favorite examples, the economist, you know, reputable economist at MIT, Lester Thoreau, who throughout um, uh, the 80s and the, uh, was a tremendous Japan and Germany booster, and he said, you know, America was America was too dog eat dog capitalism. The Japanese and the Germans had discovered this kind of communal cooperative uh, capitalism. They were going to bury us. The 21st century would belong to Japan. <laughs> All of a sudden, Japan uh, tanks. And Germany slows down. America takes off in the 90s. So Thoreau, just without missing a beat, begins to blast the Japanese and the Germans, and they've missed the boat. The 21st century belongs to the United States. And I say it, there's a there's a famous uh, passage in uh, 1984 where some party functionary is giving a speech denying uh, uh, denouncing. Uh, uh, East Asia, with which you know uh, the uh, the uh, what do they call Oceania, Oceania, I guess, is the country that's at war with East Asia. And in the middle of his speech, someone hands him uh, a, a piece of paper saying, "Actually, we we've just made peace with East Asia. We're we're um, we're at war with Eurasia." So he doesn't miss a beat. He continues with his speech, except he merely substitutes Eurasia for East Asia. So I mean, this is a you know this is a satire on the Nazi-Soviet pact. But this is what Thoreau did. You know, so one book he's you know pessimistic about the United States and he's lauding Japan's humane ca capitalism. Next book, it's the opposite. But there's no acknowledgement. Well, at least he changed. was quick on his feet. He made a recovery. <laughs> very quick. Somebody who was in the very same position was a guy at Harvard named Ezra Fogel, who did uh, a, a major book uh, about Japan becoming power. Oh, uh -huh. And uh, he hasn't been heard from for a number of years. <laughs> I loved your proposal for a journal of retraction. Yes, well, I think that uh, actually, you know, there's uh, uh, this is one of Stanley Fish's administrative innovations. He's drawn to. Uh, circle a uh, a center for public intellectuals. I think is funded by the Red Hat billionaire youths, and um, uh, I think a good pro if it's a well-funded center, a good project would be you know monitoring and monitoring public intellectual discourse. Gentlemen, we are as usual late for some commercials. We'll take care of that. Then there's a brief update on the news, and then we'll be directly back to Richard Posner and Ron Grossman. First, these words, and directly back to Richard Posner and Ron Grossman. And the question I was raising a moment ago, Ron, is simply who, currently writing, currently speaking, and many of them, of course, show up on television, which tends to degrade their their thought no matter what they have to say. But still, who really is, to your own personal taste, 
uh, a significant contributor, a, a significant interpreter. I'm going to play the professor again and say we can't answer that question till we put it in historical perspective. To me, the intellectual's intellectual is Rousseau, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. I wanted to talk about living <laughs> contributors. But let me tell you the reason why. Yeah. Because um, both conservatives and liberals claim as a, him as a founding mm -hmm. father. It's not that, as the judge was saying, he serves to reinforce that which we already know, but he seems to stimulate people to think about their positions, even if their positions are contradictory. Again, that's something I don't find in many contemporary writers. So I can't squeeze a current enthusiasm out of you. I'll defer. All right. Richard Yes, Bergner. well, I, I would add, uh, I, I would nominate uh, John Stuart Mill. <laughs> uh, because, I mean, it's the Mill, same evasion. Mill, of course, you know, brilliant person, writing uh, uh, serious treatises in economics and in um, logic that got him a reputation. And then uh, uh, porting this reputation into the public sphere with books like uh, of course, on liberty and considerations on representative government and subjection of women, so on, particularly on liberty. And actually, picking up on something that Mr. Grossman said, um, he is a patron saint both to liberals and conservatives. I mean, there's a brand of, or actually, my, what I consider my brand of con libertarian conservatism comes directly out of John Stuart Mill, but of course, a lot of more modern type of liberal people liberal in the more modern sense, also look at Mill, emphasizing his position on women and the um, uh, the free speech uh, dimension of on liberty. So, yeah, now I don't think we have people like that now, today. Now, there's the problem that uh, you have, you know, you have a winnowing that time does. So we don't remember all the mediocrities of the 19th century. We remember the giants. There may be giants in our midst that either haven't reached, you know, oaks that haven't reached their full height, or there's just so much noise that we're not we're not picking them up. Now, of course, Rousseau, uh, Mill was certainly famous in his lifetime. I don't know whether Rousseau. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. He was famous in infamous. Yeah, when, when, when Rousseau decided that this was the way to raise children, middle class women oh, all over Europe so, changed. Yeah, he was yeah, the Doctor yeah, Spock of the 18th yeah. century, among other things. Well, I will, commit myself if, example, uh, I will commit my, myself, if neither of you will, uh, by naming five public intellectuals who I think make very significant contributions, uh, though they are not all equally well-known. George Will is very mm -hmm. well-known, and he yes. turns up third on that list of, of yours based upon citation research. Uh, William Bennett strikes me as a very significant commentator on cultural affairs and on our, the very temper of American life. Uh, Roger Kimball is by no means as well known. He's mm -hmm. the managing editor of the New Criterion, right, mm -hmm. who does, I think, very brilliant essays on one of the first history. to spot what was uh, happening in higher education. When yes, the, indeed. Yeah. In his book, uh, Tenured Radicals. Radicals yeah. uh, Theodore Dalrymple is a British writer who shows up in the New Criterion and also in the excellent journal that Myron Magnet puts out in New York, uh, the City mm -hmm. Journal. Mm -hmm. uh, and Dalrymple is really first rate the drawing largely from English uh, social experience, and a philosopher, an official philosopher, who has left the academy and writes, again, very critically and I think very perceptively about public affairs and the general decline of the quality of culture in England uh, or and or in this country. Roger Scruton, is that name known? Oh, yes. 
Mm-hmm. Yes, I've read a fair amount of Roger Scruton. Some of it is a little goofy, actually. Particularly his stuff on fox hunting. fox hunting. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the same I agree. Chapter. I agree there, yeah. Yes. Fox okay, fox. let me... All right, I'll, I'll nominate some. Good, I'm I'll glad. nominate some people. Um, uh, well, I mentioned... I, I, I like Andrew Sullivan a lot. Uh, among, you know, living uh, intellectual, mm-hmm. uh, in his case, a journalist. James Q. Wilson, I uh-huh. think, is a really distinguished yes, Very good. academic. Maybe we ought to identify for the radio uh, listeners who exactly he is. Well, James Q. Wilson, I guess I think he's technically a political scientist. Mm-hmm. I think of him as a sociologist at the UCLA. He is, uh, he, he's written a, across a, a large range of issues, but what he's most famous for is having invented the broken broken windows theory of, of policing, which mm. caught on and had seemed to have such an impact in cities like uh, New York and Chicago. I, and I would second him for this reason. He entered a field which uh, philosophy goes first and statistics goes afterwards, if at all. That is, we know why crime does or does not occur, whether it should be punished or not be punished. And he said, let's try to, to study it with some kind of dispassion and figure the relation between what happens and what ought to happen. Who else is on your list? Um, well, I mean, there are people I, th- I think highly. I, I'm not, you know, I'm not. I don't think they can quite have the influence that the well, John Stuart Mill ha- yeah. had. But um, um, Louis Menand. Uh-huh. No, I, I do like his writing. So, so he wrote. Yeah. His book on the metaphysical, the, the metaphysical club, I think it's not quite to my taste. It's too much about the personalities yeah. of the uh, pragmatists, but it's an effort to introduce pragmatism to the general public using the personality to get a general reader interested. And you know, he's written many good articles for the. New he's the best books. And, the best regular. Uh, Writer in the New York Review of Books, I and, he, and writes for the yeah. New Yorker. So he, you know, and uh, my friend, a personal friend of mine, Joseph Epstein, you know, was very distinguished editor of the American Scholar for many years until they dumped him for being too conservative. <laughs> and um, you know, and he he writes essays and he writes fiction, and uh, you know, he is he is very intelligent, broad person. He doesn't have the the visibility that. Uh, uh, a person, say, like Edmund Wilson. Mm-hmm. But, uh, and another person sure, who has uh, worked inside and outside of the academy. In, in his essays, he has a nice way of bringing a personal experience of growing up into the discussion of a much larger issue. Joe Epstein. You know? Joe Epstein, yeah. yeah. Superb. He's right. first rate. Yeah. Uh, gentlemen, we're going to pause right now for the usual reasons, and then it will be time to go to the telephones. So let me take a moment to invite calls for anything you want to ask or anything you want to assert about intellectual life in America today, that is, in the public sphere, rather than in the, uh, the cloistered uh, secret uh, in- institutions that are the universities, but they're not terribly uh, hidden from view these days at all. Uh, our phone number is, of course, 591-7200, 591-7200. It would be great to hear from some professional intellectuals, whether academically based or otherwise but you don't have to be one to talk about them. 591-7200, and if you are listening on the Internet at some great distance uh, and would rather email us, uh, the email address is, of course, uh, w, uh, rather extension 720 at tribune.com. Extension 720 as one word, 
at Tribune, T-R-I-B-U-N-E dot com, or 591-7200. I see the calls accumulating. Uh, there's still room on the board. If you want to call and get into this conversation, move quickly. We return right after these words. With a quick reintroduction of our guests, and we will go directly to the telephones. Uh, judge Richard Posner is um, a sitting judge on the um, U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit. He was chief judge of that court for some seven years. Uh, he is senior lecturer at the University of Chicago Law School, and he is the author of many um, uh, challenging books, uh, interesting angles always developed on sexuality, on the law itself in many different aspects. More recently, on the uh, impeachment trial of President Clinton, and for that matter, on the recent election and the presidential election. And now the new book that we're drawing from tonight is Public Intellectuals, A Study of Decline, that is published by Harvard University Press. Ron Grossman is a leading features writer for the Chicago Tribune and a former academic professor of ancient history for many years. And one of the regular uh, areas on his beat is intellectual life and the American University. 591-7200 is the number. Here, I gather, is a long-distance call. Where are you calling from, please? I'm calling from Charleston, West Virginia. Yes, sir. Go ahead. Thank you very much. Uh, I'd like to make a quick uh, value judgment or generalization, and I'd like to get uh, all three of your comments on it, if you agree with it, and if it's uh, something that's true of American intellectuals or American intelligentsia, or if it's something that uh, is maybe consistent with just uh, being an intellectual in general. It seems to me that the ontology of an intellectual seems to be more I think, therefore I am, instead of I do, therefore I am. Or to put it in, an, in other words, it seems that they do not pay respect enough to the god Dionysus, or they have these great Socratic forms that in reality just don't exist. And I sometimes think when it comes to political matters, economic matters, etc., there seems to be a rub or a cognitive dissonance there. Thank you. Well, all right. What do you make of that, Ron? I'm not sure quite sure I, the apposition between the Dionysian and the Socratic. Uh, yeah, I it think it, be, is, it should be Dionysian and Apollonian. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I, yeah, I think it is correct. And it probably is a little more true here than in Europe for a simple reason. Salaries are much less in Europe. So most uh, professors there double at something if it be something so humble as regular writing for a newspaper mm -hmm. on the level mm -hmm. of book reviews. So per force, they have to be beyond the ivory tower. I, th I think there is, as, as I said earlier, I think uh, uh, one of the dangers in having uh, a, a very active and powerful intellect is that, you know, you cast your mind beyond the uh, uh, things in front of your eyes and you imagine and you look at the world, you see its imperfections, you think you can think your way through. As, as Mr. Grossman said earlier, you know, the world has a kind of recal recalcitrance to thought and you know, you, you, if you go out into the world, you'll quickly stub your intellectual toe on um, some pretty hard bricks, and then you are chastened. We thank the caller. I want to read you uh, an email that just come in. In the promo to tonight's program, the name of Cornell West was mentioned. Uh, I would be interested in hearing your guest's comments about him. Indeed, you do comment on him in the book, don't you? 
Yes, I mentioned Cornel West is a, a professor at Harvard, a professor of black studies, and uh, very prominent. And what I mentioned in the book was that uh, Cornel West is a person who wants to, you know, play an active role in the political world. He wants to help, you know, his race and so on. He was a prominent endorser of Senator Bradley in the Democratic. Now he's leading campaign. the uh, one of the leaders of the Al Sharpton for president. Oh, right. Campaign. Yes, I read that. But actually, he's a uh, he's a philosopher whose whose real world is the world of sort of French postmodernism and and uh, esoteric intellectual speculations. Really, have nothing to offer American blacks or or anybody else in the ordinary world. So I think there's a, a disconnect between what he'd like to do and and what his academic training has, and, has given and him. And of course, Ron, as you know, there's been a big brouhaha at Harvard between the new president and West, and West was uh, urged by Larry Summers to uh, pay more attention to his teaching and not give 150 speeches a year at $15,000 on the average per speech. And uh, West said he was outraged uh, to be so treated, and he's now gone to Princeton. Uh, two quick observations. Uh, oh, no, he hasn't left. He hasn't no, but left. he's announced that he's taking a job at Princeton. Really? Oh, yes. I believe I'm right on no, that. No, I thought this was hanging fire. Anthony Appiah from the Harvard. Right, I think it's Appiah oh, that's, Appia Appia that's yeah. going. Yeah. Yeah. Two quick observ mistake, observations. Indeed. The first to stub their toe in reality among the philosophers is Plato, who goes to Syracuse right, right. and goes uh, right back home after trying to reform right. it. A, a number of years ago, I was doing a story on a, uh, a lady who had some problems at Columbia University. She was turned down on her uh, thesis defense. Cornel West was one of her mentors, and I was trying to get a hold of him for comment on it. And when you dialed up his phone, it said, if you are calling for a speaking engagement, please redial so-and-so at the William Morris Agency. Mm -hmm. If you're looking for a book or a manuscript, contact my agent. You could see the kind of... Um, the intellectual as self-contained corporation that happened. Yes, yes. There are a few around uh, who are like that. His colleague Henry Louis Gates at Harvard probably uh, is mm -hmm. just about as active on the lecture circuit. Yes, as what what West illustrates is there is actually some money in this business. Oh yeah. Although, as with many kind of tournament uh, and and you know celebrity and Hollywood type. Careers, it's uh, very unequally distributed. Few people really do make a lot of money from lectures and best-selling books. I think most public intellectuals are in it for the, the sort of the glory, the sense that they're. The currency isn't money, but the currency isn't money. It's some kind of prestige. Attention. I mean, people love publicity. It's, sure. Uh, so. Back to the phones. Here is the next caller. Hello, you're on the air. Oh uh, yes, sir. Uh, the very interesting. Uh, uh, conversation you're having this evening. Uh, it's interesting you wrote the med medical uh, physical book. I, I just purchased that book about a half an hour ago. It seemed like it's a very interesting read. Uh, my comment, I, I just had a quick comment, and I'm going to hang a uh, quick comment and, and hang up the phone. Uh, it's interesting that just until late, uh, recently you start talking about Gates and you start talking about uh, 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 the gentleman, the, the professors at Harvard. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm, the perspective I'm trying to, uh, when you earlier you was most of your conversation when you're talking about intellectuals. I get the impression that most of the intellectuals that you that that the panel is stemming from are from uh, Western European, and they tend to be uh, white male. Even the the dead ones that you talked about, I was uh, interesting. I was surprised. I, I, I was looking for something like a W.E. Du Bois to be brought up in that uh, convers uh, conversation as well. But my my, uh, my 
comment I want to make too is, uh, is are there some intellectuals as far as uh, being women uh, from an Eastern uh, uh, point of view or from a Middle Eastern point of view? Is it's all intellectuals? Um, I just like to hear your comment uh, as far as coming from other points of view, just besides the, for the, like the last 500 years, or even going back to Plato, it seemed like all of the intellectuals, uh, according to this panel, it seems like, are coming from this well, white, male, uh, uh, white male point of view. Uh, thank you very much for your comment. All right, well, let's have the yeah. game. There, there, are, there have been a number of very prominent uh, uh, female uh, public you. intellectuals in fact, I think it, it's arguable that the three most prominent modern American public intellectuals are all female, Rachel Carson, Betty Friedan, and Anne Rand. So there's no dearth of, of, of female public intellectuals. Now, there are also a great many prominent black public intellectuals, and um, now I have the statistics in my book, but what I said in the book was that I regarded the uh, uh, intellectuals whose concern was with the problems of a particular race, particular ethnic group, for example, Jewish intellectuals who write about Jewish matters, black intellectuals writing about problems of blacks, that was uh, a specialized study in itself that I wasn't going to attempt to do because you'd have to be, you know, you have to immerse yourself in the literature of con uh, concern with the problems of particular group. So I'm looking at people whose uh, male, female, or whatever, who's, uh, uh, who, who are uh, talking about, uh, at a somewhat higher level of generality, about uh, the problems of the country or of the world. Ron Grossman. I would nominate uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, one of the uh, consummate public intellectuals of the 20th century. If memory serves me right, he gets the first Ph.D. by an Afro-American mm -hmm. at Harvard. An academic career is largely close to him. One of his books begins with the sentence, the problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line. You can't predict much better than that. He goes into uh, the real world and helps to organize the Niagara Conference, which then becomes the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, publishes their magazine and gets too radical for them, so they take it away from him. And I think at the age of 80, decides he's given capitalism enough time joins the Communist Party and goes to Ghana to live his last years. Now, that's a heck of an intellectual trail and a public one. There is an excellent uh, two-volume biography of him by David Levering Lewis, yeah. who has appeared on this program, and we've discussed that. One but, of the prominent current uh, uh, Asian public intellectuals is Amartya Sen, who's Indian, won the Nobel Prize in Economics, now teaches in England, was at Harvard for many years. So, it, you know, it's an international and multiracial, multiethnic, uh, multigendered world, but I, although I, I, I don't try to cover the whole thing. Our phone number, 591-7200. There's one line available at this moment, 591-7200. You are the next caller. Hello, you're on the air. Good evening. Uh, I would like to ask your distinguished panel, about the three people, two of whom are current and one of whom is from the past. Uh, I would like to ask what they feel about uh, Haynes Johnson and Doris Kearns Goodwin, and also if they would consider Mark Twain to possibly be a public intellectual, even though he had, you know, he wasn't an academician. 
And I'll hang up the phone and listen to your answer. Oh, well, don't hang up. Stay in there for a minute. Okay. Uh, well, of course, Haynes Johnson has always had a journalistic career. I don't believe he's ever been academic. I, I don't think so either. Yeah. But he's written a book. Oh, he's written yeah, a number sure. of books. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Journalists do it from time to time. Can a journalist be considered a public intellectual? Oh, of absolutely. course. Of course. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, George Orwell was basically was basically a journalist, and I've mentioned Andrew Sullivan a couple of times who's a journalist, and. Um, uh, Christopher Look, Hitchens is an example of, you know, mm -hmm. colorful, a colorful and an independent-minded journalist, someone who's, you know, he's being criticized from the left now as mm -hmm. someone who's moved toward the right. So, yes, no, I think journalists have always been an important part of the, um, but I think they tend to, are tending to get squeezed out by the academics. Doris Kearns Goodwin, this gentleman asked about as well. She had the recent embarrassment, right. similar to Stephen Ambrose, right. concerning whether Plagiarism, she had plagiarized. Yeah. Yeah. Did you hear her defense on that? Uh, or read it? About the yellow pads? Exactly. <laughs> yes, the yellow pads defense. <laughs> I read about that. Yeah, yeah. I don't consider the... Well, actually, what's, what's interesting to me about, by just kind of luck, my book comes out at about the same time that there are a whole bunch of little scandals about public intellectuals. There's the Belial that Mr. Grossman has been writing about. Mm -hmm. There's Kerr, uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin and Stephen Ambrose. And there's the Enron payments to Paul Krugman and William Crystal. And then there's the Cornell West flap at, at Harvard. So yeah, William Crystal, Bill Crystal, uh, it was disclosed, took $100,000 from Enron for yes. sitting at a little uh, private meeting for two days, yes, in which he explained his views of American politics. Well, it's very funny because he he says his only contribution was to convince Kenneth Lay that uh, John McCain was a viable mm -hmm. presidential candidate. We get a hundred thousand dollars for that. That's very very nice. What about the, the case uh, of Stephen Ambrose? Most of the people we've talked about in uh, the last few minutes, uh, the functioning contemporary public intellectuals, have in fact been on this radio program over the years. Uh, Stephen Ambrose has been here a few times. Uh, that was very distressing. You know, my guess on it, and uh, I've profiled him, is that, again, it's a case of success becoming, uh, becoming the victim of your own success. He began as an academician. But Trained at, uh, at uh, Wisconsin with a PhD. Exactly, and for many years taught down in um, Tulane. Tulane. Yeah. But then I think the books were coming out so fast that he had to create a kind of research engine. I think he told <laughs> me that his son supervises it. Yeah, yeah. So I think the material was being accumulated and fed to him. I've had that very thought. And he yeah. didn't really think, well, mm -hmm. has somebody taken this out of the words? The books were written by committee rather than by him. Is it's what sort of like the Dumas family in France. The Dumas mm -hmm. factory, mm -hmm. as yeah. it were. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. We, That's interesting, of course. Yeah, yeah. We pause again for the usual reasons and then right back to the phones and the email. The phone number 591-7200 for email, extension 720 at tribune.com. And speaking of that audio archive, you will find on it all of the discussions we've had concerning the war on terrorism since uh, the date of September 12th. And... Uh, we are having another such discussion next week, in fact. But I hereby announce that something else we will be putting up on the audio archive is tonight's program. So within a few days, if uh, you want to recommend it to somebody else or if you want to hear it again, just go to WGNRadio.com and scroll down to extension 720, and then among our many offerings, you will find the audio archive. 591-7200, the number as we go to this caller. Hello. Yes, sir. Judge Paul.
Posner, I believe the last time you were on with Mr. Rosenberg, you said that neither party would nominate nor support you for the Supreme Court. I think well, that's unfortunate. I think it's unfortunate. <laughs> but I, I, when I called, I mentioned to the producer, my question was a study of decline in the courts. And uh, I'm neither an intellect, lawyer, or even esoteric. I, I must confess to a lifetime in the insurance business. And I just don't understand what I seem to what I see as extortion and runaway verdicts and such things as asbestos, discrimination, implants, tobacco, etc. And I wonder, Judge, do, do, don't, isn't there some feeling in the judiciary that these things are out of line and can't they do anything about it or won't they do anything about it? You've got 500,000 people in Florida going to collect without even having been plaintiffs. You've got now a, a court that's going to award uh, uh, asbestos to people who might get it but they don't yet have it. I'm just lost with this. Thank you. I think the problem is the way in which the American legal system is organized. We have, of course, the federal court system, but we have 50 state court systems. Yeah. And um, uh, these state court systems reflect the local culture, sometimes down to the county, county level. And uh, in most states, the judges are elected and there's a populist tradition and a lot of deference paid to Intellect juries. Intellectual juries. And um, that's, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a cost of federalism. Plaintiffs in these mass tort cases, nationwide tort cases, will often be able to pick very favorable venues, particular counties in Alabama or southern Illinois. East St. Louis. So, yes, yes. So that's uh, the situation we're in. There, there have been efforts, both state and federal, to limit uh, certain types of tort case, you know, statutes of repose and the like. And um, yeah. the Securities Reform Act of a few years ago was an effort to curtail securities class actions. So... There is some reform effort, but... Um, I think what you're saying is most of it's political. Well, that's, it's the structure of the country. Is if you have a federal structure, highly decentralized, you're going to have a lot of opportunities for you know, extreme uh, regional variations. Sir, we thank you for the call. Thank you, Mr. Rosen. Glad to have heard from you. And we'll go quickly to another on 591 7200. Good evening, you're on the air. Uh, yes, I was wondering if Carl Sagan was on the list. Most of these people seem to be like political pundits. Right, or... that's right. That's right. Yes, that's, that's a good question. Let me, um, add, let me add to yes, that question yes. an email that's just come in which relates to it. Yeah. Are there any pure scientists who are genuine public intellectuals? Uh, I'm thinking of Edward O. Wilson, Stephen Jay Gould, Richard Dawkins, Stephen Weinberg. Yes, there there are a number of uh, of scientists that is nat natural science, physical scientists, not rather than social scientists, who have gone the public intellectual route. Famous example in history was Einstein, who had an active kind of side side life, uh, promoting pacifism and actually kind of well, taking a lot of silly positions. So. Well, scientists and mathematicians, other brilliant uh, uh, people of that sort, have no monopoly on wisdom when they uh, branch out into public intellectual work. But the the other point is that with someone like Carl Sagan is a person who is popularizing science rather than uh, 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 moving into ideological territory, and I and that kind of 
public intellectual work, that is, intellectuals who are writing for the public but not with a political or ideological slant, is much less mm. problematic. An example is the music critic and, and uh, pianist Charles Rosen. He's a wonderful intellectual, and he writes in a, in a way, not all to the time, unfortunately, but writes in, in magazines like New York Review of Books, and you can you know he's writing for us and not just for specialists but that's not the kind of public intellectual whose work is 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 problematic let me say a, a word on behalf of Einstein he could say some foolish things but he did affect public policy in a decent way with the famous letter of about course, the development yes. of the bomb yeah. uh, and it is true that uh, others went to him with the urgency of doing it but had he not signed on who knows what yes. would have happened it's a rare time when I can true, yes. uh, disagree with and correct Richard Posner but I think I can on Carl Sagan uh -huh. uh, when Carl whom I knew uh -huh. um, and we come from the same neighborhood in Brooklyn as uh -huh. fact, he was on this program rather frequently uh, when Carl um, married his last wife Annie Vruyen uh, Annie is a, a very devoted uh, activist feminist and she had a very strong influence hmm. on Carl. So that one night when he was on this program, uh, uh, I spoke of mankind. And he stopped to correct me and said, <laughs> I'm not comfortable with that word. <laughs> we have to say person kind. Person, and, not humankind? Or humankind, whatever it was. But, you know, and uh, it was not only an exchange like that, but generally, he, in some of his writing, um, conveys a general sure, left that. liberal yeah. orientation yeah. on no, feminism right. and on other huh. matters. Huh. But in the last phase yeah. of his two short lines. Yeah. That's interesting. Uh, we will pause for a quick round of commercials. And there is room on the board now for the first time. If you've been trying to reach us, do certainly try again for questions to Judge Richard Posner and to Ron Grossman. The number, 591-7200, 591-7200. And directly back to the phones, uh, there are some lines available, as I said a moment ago. If you want to reach us, move quickly. 591-7200, the number. You are on the air. Good evening. Thank you very much for your program. Yes, sir. In interested in two names. One current would be William Buckley and mm -hmm. one from history past. Would you consider Jesus an intellectual of his day? <laughs> That's uh, a rather uh, stunning question. Bill Buckley's easier to handle, I would say. Buckley's not my cup of tea, but uh, I think he, from his position, has an ability to entertain the opposite view. And especially as an interviewer, he will often draw out from the other side when they are stumbling over their own position. So I think he's got the ability to consider ideas other than his own. I think there's no question Buckley has sort of kept the conservative flame alive in the 50s, you know, in some ways the United States was more conservative in the 50s than it is today, mm -hmm. but there was no sort of respectable conservative intellectual thought in the 50s, very little. So mm -hmm. Buckley kept that going. Of course, he is a serious Catholic, so it connects up with Jesus Christ. I, don't, I, I wouldn't describe Jesus Christ as a public intellectual only because his... Um, uh, his preaching, so far as you know, we have it in the in the various gospels, is uh, more kind of you know very highly metaphorical and parables and so on. It it it's not um, if you Saint Paul or or Saint Augustine would be better candidates for kind of 
in intellectual, more intellectual preaching. Then you come down to people like Luther. You'd certainly describe Luther as a public intellectual, a voluminous writer, and standardized the German language among other accomplishments. Yes. For so, our own further reading, uh, the lifetime reading plan is that a good source of books to to pursue to read to to you know develop ourselves as an intellectual. Uh, that's the great books program, is it, sir? Right. Uh, yeah, I think so. By Fadiman, and the lifetime reading plan he went through. And yeah, well, I don't think you can go wrong following right, right. some such plan. Yeah. We thank you for the call. Thank you. And um, we'll go quickly to another uh, on 591-7200. Good evening. Hi, Matt. How are you? Good, sir. Um, a few years ago, I was at a seminar by Thomas Sowell, and he talked mm -hmm. about the difference between an intellectual and a scholar and it was his opinion, at least at that time, that a scholar is somebody who seeks knowledge for its own sake, where an intellectual or some intellectuals may seek knowledge in the search of power, not necessarily their own personal power, but power in the sense of a political or cultural movement. I think he was referring a lot to the, the millions of dead corpses from communism, fascism, mm -hmm. and Nazism that probably couldn't have gotten to that point without intellectual support at one point. And one, one, one individual that I, I enjoy, that Milton, you've had on numerous times, I guess, is someone who makes me think whether I agree with him or not, is uh, Thomas Fleming from Chronicles. Yes, he's a strong uh, yeah, conservative strong in ideology. Yeah, very strong opinion. Even though I don't agree, it makes me either want to think or investigate or do some research on some of his ideas. And it's, it's rare to either read him or listen yeah. to him. Well, he and his colleagues at the Rockford Institute put out a... Uh, a uh, public magazine titled Chronicles, right, yeah. which uh, sometimes goes way off the deep end, as mm -hmm. far as I'm concerned. Yeah, and, I agree. But I, and Fleming has gone off the deep end yeah. on some issues. But he, he's rarely um, boring, let's put it that way. True. Uh, I, I think you're right. I, I, there's, I, I don't think all intellectuals are involved in, 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 in power, but, it, but of course it's a temptation. If you're going to write for the public about current affairs, uh, it's quite likely you want to influence uh, the direction of the country, and and you're quite right. Mm -hmm. If you go back behind cap behind communism and fascism is, you know, intellectual. Certainly, Karl Marx was a 19th century public intellectual. Lenin was a public intellectual, and Hitler was a public intellectual. I think I also referred to Giovanni yeah. Gentili, who. Uh, an intellectual in Italy. Or, yes. Oh, yeah, behind the fascist. But well, one thing you mentioned before about predictions reminded me during the Super Bowl week where it was impossible for me to say, I just wanted to watch the Super Bowl because I enjoy football. Most people I know were obsessed with the idea of giving a prediction. Right. And I think a lot of people, a lot of intellectuals succumb to the, the realm of celebrity or going on TV where people really want to hear a long, detailed discussion or observations. They quickly want to know, what is your prediction about whatever, Afghanistan, uh, the war on drugs? And it's a television, a television response to say, I think this will happen. Yes, I think one of the things that's going on is that uh, a correct prediction is much more likely to be remembered than an incorrect. And the reason for it is the person who made the correct prediction will remind you that he mm -hmm. made a correct prediction. He's right. not going to remind you about his mistaken predictions. So, and, it, and there's really but, no consequence. So if you make predictions, yeah. you know, if you make a lot of predictions, 
and some even modest percentage are correct, you can build on that. You can also adapt your prediction if you've yeah. managed enough ambiguity to the facts as yes. they have emerged. That is the art of cold reading yes. practiced yes. by by a, a necromancer. Well, the one prediction yes. I, eternally. The one prediction I can I, I can make is that uh, Rosenberg will always have interesting programs. Thank you, sir. That's Thank very you. kind. <laughs> Good night. Um, I want to read you just the end of a of a rather long email, um, which is uh, uh, which chides us for being pseudo intellectuals, uh, and <laughs> says, uh, if you can't incorporate the tenets of philosophy of language, mathematical and modal logic, and functional linguistics into your theories which no journalist or radio program can, you are not an intellectual. And the last paragraph, and by the way, Chomsky is probably America's and the world's foremost intellectual at this time, not only because of his thinking, but because of his engagement in the spirit of Socrates, Descartes, and Thoreau. Challenge authority, in quotes. Chomsky has problems, but he can put to shame most of the names you have mentioned. Well, he, he certainly has a Socratic bent about him. Uh, uh, he just went to Turkey to volunteer to stand trial along with the publisher of one of his books who got into trouble with the regime there. Now, really? Since Socrates said, no, I don't want to go up to Thessaly. I'll wait for the boat with the, uh, with the poison. I don't know many who have done that. Except Socrates, of course, was a, was a person who liked to ask questions mm -hmm. rather than uh, a dogmatist, yeah. rather than giving answers. Uh, I'm not sure quite how um, uh, quite how uh, Descartes fits. Who is the third? Uh, uh, Thoreau. Oh, Descartes, Thoreau. Yeah. Yes, Thoreau. Yeah. Well, Thoreau is a colorful guy, but Thoreau um, uh, went home to his mother for lunch. Well, Did you know that? He was he was li he was living in a simpler time, and he you know he had a simple mm. he had a simple program, but uh, Chomsky is commenting on you know very complicated historical and and political events, with uh, and he's very smart, but he's not so smart that he really can cover the whole world of modern history and politics. You know, in a way, Marx in a way Marx was better than the others mm -hmm. because uh, here he comes up with a theory of where the revolution's going to occur. And on one occasion, he's asked by the Russian socialists, will it be in our country? And he says no. But he left another, enough ambiguities in the rest of his writing yeah. that both sides could claim that he made the correct prediction forever after. Would you agree that the acting, politically acting intellectual who comes to power is intrinsically a very dangerous person? All the way from uh, uh, See, in the French Revolution, one would deal with Robespierre, mm -hmm. particularly Lenin. If you say Hitler was an intellectual, and he was yes, sort of oh, a self-styled yeah. yeah. intellectual, uh, these, uh, these men possessed of ideas yeah. can do vast damage as compared to pragmatic politicians. Yeah. No, there's no question. Hitler was, a, he, he had a very strong commitment to a racial theory. It was, he was not an educated person. It wasn't a, a sound theory, but... Uh, but but he was he was a serious person in the sense he was not a cynic he was not merely an opportunist he was someone who was driven by uh, uh, strong mm -hmm. beliefs that he thought he had reasoned uh, re reasoned his way out. One yeah. of the great books of our time, or of a somewhat earlier time, came out of the University of Chicago. Richard Weaver's Ideas Have Consequences, mm -hmm. which really points up the danger of the intellectual. You know, I, and I think it's for the reason we uh, alluded to before. If you spend your life thinking about things, 
the equations come out nice and neat. Mm -hmm. And then you find yourself in power and the edges are blurred. Mm -hmm. Human beings are resistant to formulas and you take one step after another to try and tug history into your formulaic uh, understanding. A very interesting email um, uh, that I want to read to you. Can we also frame this discussion of the decline of public intellectuals in terms of supply and demand? And if so, is it possible that the diminishment of the caliber of the public intellectual supply is related to a diminished intellectual capacity of their audience demand. Mm. Yeah, I think I think in this sense that as uh, the world becomes uh, uh, more complicated and people become very busy, you don't have a kind of general uh, common uh, pool of knowledge that the politician and the intellectual and the voter and so on, the consumer, can all um, appeal to. We all have little s snatches of knowledge. So when uh, the public intellectual um, offers his nostrums and predictions and so on, the people mm. to, who are reading him and are entertained or are reinforcing their views, they're not a critical audience because they're not going to have the knowledge that will enable them to be, to be critical. I would put a slightly different spin on the market forces. I would hesitate to say that the public is less literate right now because on the way home, I'm going to walk by two super bookstores. And I can remember a time when Crocs was the only thing in town. Mm -hmm. So somebody's reading something. I would say that the expansion of the number of intellectuals has got to diminish the talent pool. Yes, we went yes. from a few universities to a large number of universities, right. and it's roughly like the expansion of the major leagues and the dropping of the batting averages. Yeah, that, that's a good point that I have not uh, adequately stressed. Yeah. But there are many who argue that the quality of college education is significantly diminished or deteriorated from what it was when you went to college. See, this is the beauty of being an intellectual. I've taken just that position on this show many times. <laughs> yes, you have. Yes, you have. Uh, and it may well be that Borders and Barnes & Noble have uh, young people uh, in there pouring over the books. They're also looking to meet other young people. Pouring over the each fact, other, yes. The fact is that the surveys we've got about American reading uh, behavior is that there's much less reading going on than was going on even 25 years ago. Well, I think that... Yeah, because of the the rise of television sure. uh, and the and just people are so terribly busy that uh, leisure act. I mean, reading as a as a leisure activity is very time consuming. So. And television uh, has a compelling sort of seductive quality, which. Uh, well, I mean, if you you know you can flip channels and you can keep mm -hmm. going indefinitely. Uh, but the intellectuals we shall always have with us, I gather. Yes, I think. For better or for, for worse. For better or for worse. Yeah. Uh, the book that we've been drawing from tonight, and it is indeed challenging and uh, inevitably compelling reading, is Public Intellectuals, A Study of Decline by Richard A. Posner, uh, and it is published by Harvard University Press. Uh, Judge Posner has been uh, one of our guests. The other has been Ron Grossman, features writer for the Chicago Tribune, and I think the man was a professor in a former life. That's the worst I can say about him. That's a play on something by Dr. Johnson, I do believe. Uh, and uh, with that, we, uh, our revels now are ended, um, just with a few quick words about programs to come. Tomorrow night, we do a program on the investigation of consumer fraud with two consumer affairs experts. On Monday, we're talking about particle physics with three 
particle physicists, indeed, all from Fermilab. And Tuesday, uh, the latest installment of our analysis of the war on terrorism and the way that it is going. As I said a moment ago, the program that we uh, have just completed will be on our audio archive within a day or two. Thanks to all for listening. We'll see you again tomorrow at 9.